Well, if you would, turn to Exodus 32. Uh, I expected that we'd have a, a huge crowd because we're dealing with a very controversial issue in Exodus 32, and that is, it says that God repents. And you're going, whoa, what does that mean? Is he subject to human input? And there are those who argue it's called the openness theology, the openness of God, which argues that God is not all-knowing, that he's contingent on the decisions that human beings make. And Sanders, Clark Pennock, those are big names in that realm. And uh, is that, and, and Exodus 32 is a text they often appeal to where Moses intercedes. Um, as I was thinking through this text, uh, I'm always reminded when you go to London and do the underground, uh, there's, they, there's three words that's written on the, the concrete, and you often hear it over the intercom. What is it? Mind the gap. Please mind the gap, right? Because in between the, the, the platform and the sub, there's this narrow gap which you, you can't fall through, but you could, look, you could hurt yourself. And so as I was thinking about Exodus 32, it's mind the gap, because Moses is called to, to, to step in the gap. Because if Moses had not interceded, God would have wiped out Israel. There's no doubt about it. He even says it. Get out of the way, Moses, because I'm about to destroy him. I've had it with Israel. And you think about it. Uh, here they, <laughs> they've had all these glorious moments to get us to Mount Horeb, to, to Mount Sinai, right? It's been spectacular. And then in, in chapter 19, what do they say? Whatever you say, we'll do. Good for you. Hang that on your beak. All right? And then the law comes down, and we're not even out of the starting gate. And I want you to turn to Exodus 32 and look what's happening. This scene, similar to the Red Sea, are two archetypal uh, motifs, whatever you want to call it, that are woven throughout Israel's history. In fact, the Talmud, the Jewish rabbinic writings in the 600s, argue that every calamity that Israel ever faced from Exodus onward was ultimately because of the golden calf incident. That's how significant this scene is. And idolatry begins to plague Israel, and it will plague them until the, the final exile under Babylon in 586 B.C. All right, so <laughs> this text is, is extremely significant. Uh, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered together around Aaron and said to him, get up, and it, it, the imperative is strong. Make us gods, uh, and there's, it is plural, but God is often referred to in plurality, so some say that they're talking about other gods that they want. Some are arguing, no, this is a representation of Yahweh that they want. We'll talk about that in a minute. That will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, and that is also derogatory, as for that guy over there, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. Who brought him from the land of Egypt? God. All right. Already the theology is off. All right. And it says, we do not know what has become of him. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You, he went up the mountain. He's been down. He's been up. I mean, it's kind of a yo-yo effect from here until chapter 34. And I said, yeah, you know where he is. He's, he's been up there for a couple of weeks and you're freaking out. 
So Aaron said to them, this is amazing to me, stop it. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Break off the gold earrings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Should have been wearing them anyways. No, just joking. Uh, all right. And bring them to me. And when he says break it off, literally the Hebrew term is yank it off. Uh, <laughs> I, I went to a public high school, but it was conservative small town. I remember a, a guy came in with an earring and, and the art teacher started to yank it. She said, guys don't wear earrings. <laughs> it was funny. Anyway, um, just cracks me up. But anyway, so all the people broke off the gold earrings that were on their ears. Now, all is, is probably uh, very inclusive. It's not that they were speaking more of the majority here. And they brought them to Aaron, and he received them from their hand, fashioned it with an engraving tool. It could be that it's also a molding. Uh, it's debated and made a molten calf. Either way, Aaron is a goldsmith. He's very artistic. He knows what he's doing. All right. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. <laughs> wow. It was Moses, and now it's the gods. It's not the God. And what did Exodus 20 give us? The Ten Commandments. You will serve one God, and there are no other gods. And you will, I mean, the, the, the ink is still drying off, well, not literally, but off the Ten Commandments, right? In your notes, I quote Moberly, this is under verses 1 through 6. It says that the people still remain, the sin of chapter 32 is like committing adultery. Right? You can imagine. So let's go back to the text and look at good little Abraham or Aaron, excuse me. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation to said, Tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. So they got up early the next morning and offered up burnt offerings. They brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink. They rose up to play. The term could be sexual orgy. Uh, it is debated. 1 Corinthians 10 says, You're not to have sin like those that were in the wilderness and forsake the Lord. So it's really interesting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, go down. Uh, it's two imperatives. It's similar to Exodus 19. So we're tying this together. Watch the pronouns because your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. Did you catch that? My wife's done that. Your son just did this, right? Yeah, yeah, I got it, honey. It's both our sons, but you get the idea, right? Your people, Moses. Um, Moses, you know what, Mitch? I think I'm hearing music off of this. If we want to turn that off, that'd be great. Yeah, it's beautiful background, but it just, uh, I felt like the Lord was a descending. They have turned aside, and watch this. Even the Lord recognizes this. They turned away quickly from the way that I command them. They have made for themselves a molten calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, and, he, and the Lord directly quotes what we just saw, These are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now watch what the Lord wants to do. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this, that they are a stiff-necked people. That term occurs in the Pentateuch several times to describe the Israelites. It's used of uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when he rehearses the, the, the history of Israel. And he says, they're a stiff-necked people. Uh, it's, it's really um, more of like an ox or a calf's neck that doesn't move very much. 
which is intriguing. They worshiped a calf, but they act like calves. They act like cows, thick-headed, uh, uh, stubborn, unwilling to bend. So now leave me alone, he says to Moses, so that my anger can burn against them and that I may consume them. It's devour, it's annihilate. And I will make from you a great nation. It's the same verbiage given to Abraham in Genesis 12. We're going to start all over. <laughs> I'm done. Moses, you're going to be the second Abraham. Here we go. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God, and he said, Oh, Lord, why does your anger burn against your people when you brought out from the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say for evil he led them out to kill them in the mountains, destroy them from the face of the earth? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he says. Verse 14, Then the Lord relented over the evil that he said he was going to do to his people. Now, it doesn't mean he's not going to punish because as we see later in this whole scene, 32 through 34, many are going to die because of this sin. And uh, time doesn't permit us to do that. But I want to look at a few things that I think are very key uh, with this text as well as theologically. And, and looking at, does God change his mind? Can humans have such an impact that God says, oh, you know what, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> What's going on here? Um, but first of all, let's look at the text. Let's look at this, the worship of a golden calf. This is there in your notes. A couple things to see, as I've just stated in chapter 19. Lord, anything you say, we will do. Boom. Right? And they just received the covenant. So as I told you, we, we mentioned this um, there in your notes under that second paragraph, I quote from Hamilton that say, most likely uh, Israel's not guilty of worshiping false gods, but a false perception of who the true God is. Most scholars would argue they're short-circuiting because Moses is not present in their midst. And as a result, they want a symbol, uh, a physical representation of God that they can embrace. Uh, to assure them, yes, God is with them, etc. However, the bottom line, and God points this out, it shows your own depravity, right? Uh, yeah, Pete. Yeah, Pete mentioned that, you know, a pastor leaves and the church crumbles. And um, it, that often is the case. And that says some things about the leadership, I might argue. <laughs> uh, because uh, hopefully there's been training to carry the torch. But there is a value to the leadership. And as we're going to see, uh, Aaron does not step up to the plate at all. Yeah, Dick. All right, let me, great question, and let me get to that. It's in the notes, uh, because it's, it, that is a valid point here. Why would this happen? The ultimate, let me first back up, because we look at Aaron's the top of the list. That moron, right? I trained him. He's, I made him the voice of Israel, you know. Uh, he, he's the head Levi. I made him high priest, and he does this. Take him out. He's done. Some try to argue that Aaron is trying to salvage this mess 
by still taking their allegiance to the Lord, but corrupting it with the use of the gold calf. There is that potential. Uh, he does yank off the earrings, the text tells us, and there's some things that would seem to Kate. He's stalling, etc., uh, etc., et but he still plays a part. Just help me out. What are they? What are some ways that Aaron's involved? He obtains the gold. Yeah, he obtains the gold. What else? He does what with the people? Yeah, he, he rallies them together. I'm sure it was more of a, a mob scene that he's dealing with. Yeah, what else? He, he built an altar and he also built the golden calf, right? He built the idol and he built an altar, which is vastly different than Moses' altar that he just built earlier in Exodus. So he builds an altar, he builds <clears throat> the calf, he, he brings the people together. What else does he do? The text never tells us that Aaron objects. Never. He never says, whoa, you know, we really shouldn't be doing this. There is, I mean, this guy's a milk toast, right? He never steps in and, and mind the gap. He doesn't mind the gap. He falls short, right? What else does he do? Yeah, he, he, he establishes the festival. It's not bad enough that he's doing the, the altar and all of this. He creates a festival around it. It's crazy. And I, I mentioned there, again, um, it could have been stalling. There could be some of this that's going on. But at the end of the day, he is guilty. Is he not? Yes, he is. Aaron, you would have expected him to have stepped in, you know, and stood up and said, no, 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 this isn't right. We're not doing this. Well, the question we have is why a golden calf? And this is really intriguing. Yeah, Lou. Lot went and did his thing, and he got smoked. Yeah. This is like, oh, it's got to be worse. Because it's not just a family now, it's the entire nation of Israel. How is it come he didn't get smoked? You mean Aaron? Well, and that's why some scholars are trying to say Aaron isn't as guilty as he first appears. He's actually trying to salvage this. He's just a weak leader. Um, that's at best. Uh, at worst, you could just say God's lumping them all together. When he says, I'm going to destroy all of the Israel and start with you, Moses, uh, Aaron's in the mix. So it could be that he's just doing it all. Uh, leadership in the New Testament, however, those of you in leadership and ministries have higher accountability. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it, that's why, again, scholars are trying to say, well, maybe he's not as guilty as it first appears in the text. And I struggle a little bit with that. Kyle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you could easily see this rationalized, can't you? Well, you know, it, it, we've got a real problem. This will rally the people, and we'll still associate it with the Lord. Uh, this could help us in this process. Uh, you could see the rationalizing of the, uh, the whole event on the part of Aaron. The calf, this is intriguing. Cows, bulls, are very common in Egyptian and Canaanite worship. 
In fact, this sucker you see right here is Hathor, which is a common god in the Egyptian deity. And he's represented as a cow, as a bull. The Lord is depicted as an animal throughout Scripture. In fact, remember 19? He said, I'm like an eagle. All right? You'll see eagle. You'll see lion. You'll never, ever see God represented as a bull in Scripture. It was the quintessential pagan deity is a bull. And so what do you have here going on? You have syncretism. In other words, you've got Israel taking their faith in Yahweh, or lack thereof, uh, and, and trying to wed it with their culture. It's one of the most dangerous things the church faces in any culture. Right? It, it, and trying to separate our culture from the church is not easy. And those of you who've served in other countries, uh, they face those problems as well. Right? Well, we could spend hours just discussing what are the issues we face being as a church in the United States. What are, what are some of our hurdles that we face? Materialism? Uh, the list goes on of some things that I think that we face uh, in our culture that uh, you don't have a sense of entitlement. Uh, some of these things you just don't see in other countries. But it's, it's, it's so easily to seep in. And, and you see that here taking place, don't you? Um, and I, I cite a couple sources for you, but I love Rikens. It's the bottom of the page. It's worth coming this morning. Rikens' statement and, and his commentary is just fabulous. Once again, it was proving to be more difficult to get Egypt out of the Israelites than it was to get the Israelites out of Egypt. Isn't that great? I mean, think about it. Oh, we want to go back, Right? I uh, like, you know, we had all the meat in buckets we could ever have. No, you didn't. Sense of amnesia. Then the leaks, and yeah, and on it goes. And, you know, here we are, starving to death, thirsty. Wah, wah, wah. Right? Reminded of the little clip with Bob Newhart when he plays a counselor. He says, I have two words for you. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. Right? Forget it. And so here you see the, the Israelites going whoring after other gods in loose terms and, and abandoning Yahweh and what was given to them, right? Well, we have already seen it, so we'll move into this next scene. The Lord's response is very clear. There's no question, well, maybe it was not that bad. or what, No, no, no. <laughs> the Lord is very clear. You, your heart has demonstrated uh, your, well, your lack of allegiance has been demonstrated in, in the worship of this calf, this golden calf. And as anger is intense, the text shows that. In fact, did you notice in verse 7 and in verse 9, the Lord speaks, and where's Moses? He's still sitting there going, huh? I think he's just gobsmacked, as they say in Scotland. I mean, he's, he's just overwhelmed at looking at what's happening, going, this can't be. This can't be. What in the world are we doing? Aaron, you know better. But as we said, the Lord's quick to say, Moses, your people, <laughs> you're in charge. And this is where it becomes intriguing because we miss this in looking at, often I shouldn't say, often it's missed. I, I, 
I think scholars, many scholars are correct. The Lord is op- uh, providing Moses an opportunity to respond. That's, the, that's what's going on here. And let me show you. There's a couple things in the text that indicate that. First of all, the Lord instructs Moses to go down and to observe. He didn't have to do that. God saw what was going on. He could have just said, you're done. Wipe him out right on the spot. He's saying, Moses, come here. You're the leader, and I want to show you something. This is your people. You catch this? Right? I, I, want you, I don't want you missing this. And furthermore, he says to Moses, um, notice he says in this whole dialogue, I will make you a great nation. That's Genesis 12. Immediately, Moses should have been thinking of the Abrahamic covenant. And, and if you don't think he is, he states that in his response. At the last part of Moses' response, he says, God, remember the covenant you made with Abraham? Don't miss this. And I believe part of this whole event of Exodus 32 is to take Moses and, and just shape him and, and see, let's see how, how much you've learned in leadership the last several months we've been together. As I've molded and shaped you, I, I want to see how you're going to respond to this. And I would argue, as, as many scholars do, Childs, who is less than conservative in his commentary, even argues this, that what's happening here is an invitation from Moses. The, the leave me alone is actually one of request. Could you please leave me, well, it's not a please. Could you please, just leave me alone, because I'm going to wipe him out. So it's an opportunity for Moses to step up to the plate. Uh, and, and so that's what is characterizing this. Psalm 106 highlights this. I want you to turn to Psalm 106. Just look at this briefly. As I said, this whole scene is, is visited frequently in Scripture, the whole golden calf incident. In Psalm 106, 23, he threatened He, being God, verse 23, threatened to destroy them, but Moses, his chosen one, interceded with him and turned back his destructive anger. God is giving Moses an opportunity, right? He gives him two two choices. What are the two choices? One is obviously to save the people by standing in the gap, but what's the other? If you don't want to stand in the gap, Moses, what what, what could he do with Moses? What's the text tell us? Yeah, we'll start all over. Forget Father Abraham had many sons. We'll sing Father Moses had many sons. We'll start all over. Just forget the whole Genesis 12 and 15. Let's just just begin again. I'm tired of it. I did it in the time of Noah. I'll do it again now. All right, you kind of get that. Riken again, I just love his commentary. He states, although the people had tried to disown Moses, right, Who is that man? This is the man that brought us out of... Now, he's the only one who can save him. How ironic in the text, right? (laughs) You better hope Moses steps up to the plate. Moses' response is also amazing. Do you realize every response he gives, and we're going to see there are four issues that Moses raises to appeal to God's mercy and every one of them he's quoting God's words watch this 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 is key Moses remembers the Lord's words because <laughs> number one he says Israel's the Lord's people God you said it in fact you called them your son this is number this is bullet point one there in the in your notes 
Israel is the Lord's people. Exodus 4.2, just look at this. Look what Exodus 4.22, uh, excuse me, Exodus 4.22 states. He says, you must say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. They're my unique one. And Moses says, uh, Lord, um, don't forget, you said they were your firstborn. Also, he says, don't forget, you, you've gone to great lengths to rescue the Israelites. In fact, you, you've highlighted that several times to us. And I give you one, only one passage is Exodus 20, verse 2. Before he delivers the Decalogue, God said, I brought you out of Egypt. That's what's so horrendous with the Israelites earlier in this chapter is that they say, you know, our gods brought us out or Moses brought us out. They never give tribute to Yahweh, right? When your theology's off, idolatry is clearly going to come. <laughs> it just happens. Either you worship yourself or you worship whatever uh, you set before God. But that's, if the heart is not in tune, that's where it's going to lead. Third, he says to the Lord, don't forget, you reminded us that what you did to Egypt was for your glory. <laughs> and, and, and so if, if the Israelites get wiped out by you in the wilderness, your, your reputation isn't going to look good. You've already said it. It's vital to, to how you've interacted with the Israelites. And the fourth thing that Moses brings up, as we've just stated, is what God brought up, and that is, Lord, you've made a covenant with the patriarchs. You've identified yourself as that. Exodus 19, and then let's go back to Genesis 15, let's go back to Genesis 12. And he says, listen, you know, again, all four of these, he's quoting God and says, Lord, don't forget God takes Moses by the collar and he says, listen, you have a choice. You're either going to stand in the gap or I'm wiping them out. But how are you going to respond? And Moses astutely says, Lord, let's rehearse what you have said. Did, not, did, God, not for, did, did God forget this? No. No, I think it's an opportunity for Moses to stand up and lead. Now, Notice as well, what does Moses never say? What does he never say in this text? Because when you do Bible study, you want to look at not only what is there, but what is not there. That's very significant. So that's also free. But what else? What do we see? He doesn't accept he, Moses doesn't accept responsibility, nor should he. I heard it. He doesn't defend the Israelites. There's nothing to defend. But, you know, I've heard leaders, well, you know, the sin wasn't as bad as, you know, usually it's apparent. Well, you know, the, the, you don't understand their upbringing. You know, there was just a lot of problems. Uh-uh. There's none of that. Well, you know, they had the Egyptians were killing their first their children, and they've been through a lot these last several weeks. No, there's nothing. He doesn't justify anything that the Israelites have done. In fact, he's wise not to even go there. Because <laughs> you can just see God going, <laughs> yes, Dick. He does not beg. Mm -mm. Nope. 
He does not pontificate and say, well, let's talk about this. There's no discussion. He simply gives God back his own words. He says, Lord, this is what you have revealed to us. Yeah. Is this his first uh, real example of leadership? I think so. I mean, in true form, uh, everywhere else, God has kind of forced Moses to do it. This time, it's like, Moses, now the choice is yours. And which is interesting to me, because shortly after this, Moses asks to see the glory of God. You see this man starting to mature on a lot of fronts, not just in leadership, as he spends more and more time with God, right? And his heartbeat is now resonating with the Lord. That's interesting. I, I saw another hand. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing. This this has grace written all over it. It really does. The term for repent, this is also there in the bottom of your notes, and I just want to highlight this as well, because uh, this isn't God changing his mind. I want you to hear this, because this is where scholars like uh, those that are going to op- op- hold to openness theology is arguing, and that's not what's going on here. God's not changing his mind. In fact, that's a misrendering of the of this term. It's more of compassion or mercy, uh, or s- even sorrow. And also, and, and there's been much study done on this that God. When he delivers a statement, there's two types in the Hebrew Scripture. There's the, un- as you see, the unconditional decrees, and there's, a, there's, a cons- there's um, some parameters for this, okay? So it's not just willy-nilly. It's, it's how it's laid out in the text, etc. But th- these statements, there's no turning back. If he says it, done. However, there's also retractable announcements. So that's why 1 Samuel or Numbers can state, God does not repent, when it comes to the unconditional decrees, he said it, it's done, right? But with the retractable announcements, there is room for people to respond, and he could pull back. Uh, the whole thing with Jonah and Nineveh is an example, right? And so there's two different types, and Chisholm in his work, if you want to read more about this, he's written an article on, does God change his mind? It's spectacular. It's rather rather technical. I'm not going into great detail, because I think you can see from the text that even God is giving Moses an opportunity to do something. Uh, Here's a third part here. The theology of Exodus never teaches that the Lord is subject to human reasoning or actions. It just goes against the whole grain of Exodus. Right? Think about Pharaoh or, or, or even Moses. God is not, he's not going to be altered from what people think or do. Master, in his um, work on Exodus 32, this is there in your notes. Forgive me for reading this, but it says, God's words to Moses were not to be viewed as unchanging promises, but rather as expressions of divine displeasure and righteous anger. Moses was invited to dialogue. He was expected to remember the revelation of God in the past, and he was responsible to remember God's promise to the nation. So what do we have going on in Exodus 32, the top of your notes? I wrote, one cannot appeal to Exodus 20, I hope it should be 32, not 23, excuse me, to argue for a God who changes his mind based upon human reasoning. Such a depiction fails to account for the content, the grammatical construction, and the lexical nuances. 
In addition, this view of the Lord fails to adhere to the overall theology of Exodus. Instead, Exodus 32 portrays a holy God who demands repentance, forgives, which is clearly seen in Exodus 32 through 34, and remembers his promises and responds according to his unchanging character. That's vital. Did you catch that? And so when it says God repents, don't think, oh, he changed his mind. It's more of, no, he's sorrowful and he's one, he's going to have to show some mercy. And this whole scene is an opportunity for Moses to demonstrate his true leadership. And for Moses to say, yeah, Lord, this is what you've said. And so as a, as a result of that, Lord, I appeal to your mercy. Questions? Yeah. Yeah, and, and Chisholm in his article says if, if Moses hadn't done that, God would have wiped him out. But, but God knew, didn't he? God knew that this is how it's going to be, uh, that Moses was going to step in the plate just as he knew Jonah. <laughs> Jonah might run to, uh, to Tarsus, but I'm bringing him back because this is what I'm going to do for the people of Nineveh. So at the end of the day, it's the same question you can ask if the Israelites had accepted, the Jewish people accepted Jesus as the Messiah, right? If they had responded accordingly, that would have been it. Kingdom set up, show's over. But God knew, and looking at the big picture, this is how it's going to unfold. So I, I would argue, yeah, the Lord knew that Moses was going to do this, I would argue. When I quickly look back at the last dozen chapters, appears that Moses came down after getting the Ten Commandments in, in chapter 20, and I, I didn't quickly see where he has come down since then. Just yeah. Just the context of what's going on, we just had 11 chapters of law that I don't know that the people know anything about yet, but they had the Ten Commandments. Is that he, he did, yeah, there's coming down, so they're very aware of the law. Uh, Moses, in 19 through 34, will go up to to see God several times in this whole incident. He does it once in 19, then he goes back up to 20. He will come down, they know the law, and then he goes back up to spend more time about how they're going to lay out the tabernacle, etc., and, and, and all of that entails. So um, all of that's, well, it's actually seen a little bit later, but uh, the tabernacle, etc. But uh, yeah, there is this interchange of Moses coming up and down. Um, good, that's, that's, that's a good point. Any others? Uh, mull this over, think through it. This isn't thus saith the Lord, but I, I, I think you're hard pressed to argue that, that God just didn't know what he was doing or he was having a fit of anger as we often know anger from our children. Notice I said our children. <laughs> yeah, Chris. Yeah, in Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. Right. But as he said in Matthew 11, uh, evil people have seized the kingdom. They seized the messenger, John Baptist. They've seized the Messiah. But at the end of the day, God knew all that. So there's no really plan B because plan A is always working. <laughs> Three things to walk away with this morning. The first of these, we've already touched on it, and that is one of the most dangerous ways in which the church can lose its fidelity to the gospel is it 
to embrace its culture. And it's never, it's, it's usually very subtle. It's very subtle. We live in a postmodern world where you, I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> Just look at the news. To be dogmatic on anything is to be a bigot or you, you, you go down the list. And in a postmodern world that does not like, um, you, you can believe anything as long as you don't believe that what they believe is wrong. <laughs> then you got a problem. Uh, and yet, I, I, I've taught enough 18 to 22-year-olds to know it's amazing how much postmodernity has seeped into the church. And it is alarming. But also issues of idolatry. And, and 1 John 5, 21 closes with a very strange statement. John says, keep yourself from idols. And he's not talking, I don't think he's talking about little statues to Artemis, the patron goddess of uh, Ephesus. I don't think he's talking about that at all. He's certainly not talking about an Ashtoreth or Baal, because for the Jews, formal idolatry ended in the 586 exile. You won't see formal idolatry ever appear again in Israel's history. They finally learned their lesson. But John is saying, listen, there's still idolatry, and that is what, which robs us or eclipses our view of God. And he's saying, be very careful. And I don't know about you, but that's a constant check, you know, is my concern about my finances, my family. Uh, you, you, you fill in the gap. Is it, is it starting to eclipse my view of God? Is God first and foremost? Right? And the Israelites, unfortunately... They want a little bit of this and a little bit of this, and that's a real danger. They want a little bit of the Egyptian presentation of God via the Hathor statue, if that's the one they were thinking. I'm, I believe it is, but it could be El, the god of the Canaanites that was represented as a bull. Either way, they want a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and of course, God's is absolutely not. And may we not forget uh, it wasn't a Red Sea, but it was a former way of life that God has saved us. <laughs> he says, I've brought you out. I've saved you. Don't forget that. It's so easy, those moments. Well, I'm starting to preach, so I'll go on. Number two, people need consistent and reliable godly leaders who can keep them walking in the way of righteousness. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 13. It's intriguing. This whole book is about, you know, maintaining the faith. Don't buckle under pressure. You know, hold fast to the things of the Lord. And in chapter 11, there's that, that hall of faith. And, you know, it's Abraham and Moses. It's the who's who of people who've kept the faith. And then chapter 12, it's even Jesus Christ. But in chapter 13, it's also spiritual leaders have been placed over you. Because in 13, 7... Uh, notice what he says. Uh, Remember your leaders who spoke God's message to you. Reflect on the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. Implication leaders, <laughs> you need to lead lives that, that others can emulate. You need to have a faith that does not waver because they're watching. And you say, well, I, I'm not on staff at a church. Yeah, well, you're still head of a home. Right? You may not be married. Uh, maybe you're single. Um, but even there, I would argue, you, you, you still uh, can emulate what it means to, to, to lead. Um, it shouldn't be the wife who says, have we had devotions lately? No, it should be the, the, the head of the home who says, you know what, we've got to have devotions tonight. Um, they, the kids should see you on your knees in prayer. 
They should see you coming to a Bible study. Keep it up, right? Uh, but we, we need leaders because without it, Exodus is just a great example of what happens. And, and we see that, don't we? We see that in homes that are sometimes, not always, but homes that are falling apart because there's not a godly leader, a male leader in the home. Not always, but sometimes. We see it in churches where, uh, you know, you've got a pastor who's had moral failure. And <laughs> I remember a particular church, not in this area, and the pastor had, had a moral failure. And so the next sermon he preached, he had all these stones. And he said, whoever has the, you know, hasn't sinned, he can cast the first stone. Like, Come on. All right. You're, 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 you've been appointed to lead. Guard your hearts. And we need to pray for our leaders too, don't we? Um, but how quick, even God pointed out, you Israelites, I've, I've given you the law, you, you swore allegiance, and, and I just took Moses for a period of time. We're not talking months, talking weeks, and you've buckled. And so for leaders, and then finally, I'm really stepping on toes, so I'll move to the third one here. We should not underestimate the vital role of intercessory prayer. I want to close with 1 Timothy 2.8. I'm almost done. And you can read Calvin's little quote at the bottom later on intercessory prayer. It's excellent. But in 1 Timothy 2.8, So I want men to pray in every place. I think it's very interesting that he singles out men because he's going to deal with women in the next verse. But men, you lead in prayer in every place, lifting up holy hands without anger or dispute. <laughs> Isn't that intriguing? And the whole context is praying for all people, making intercession, verse 1. And, and that, that's a challenge to me. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, application this week, uh, I'm, I'm really, we as a board pray for you. But not, you know, not by name every day. I mean, there's a list of 130 of you guys. But I, I'm going to make more of a commitment to make sure that I'm praying for each of you. And um, we need to be praying for one another. Praying for our families, praying for our churches, praying for our kids, etc. cetera. Uh, because like Moses, we're being called to mind the gap. Right? Step in the gap. And and. And, and lead. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, what a powerful scene. Discouraging in one way to see your people fall into grotesque sin after all these incredible things you've done. And that has such a warning to us as your people today under the new covenant. You've done great things for us. Lord, help us not to veer to the left or to the right, but to be saved steadfast following you, Lord, and as uh, Galatians state, bearing one another's burdens, interceding, and uh, Lord, coming to the throne. Thank you for these men. Bless them mightily today. Go before them uh, in their private lives and, and those that are uh, married uh, in their marriages with children uh, in the workplace. Lord, um, just go before them. Thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.